so Esther chapter 1 verses 1 to 12 and chapter 2 verses 1 to 18 Uh, there's quite a few Old Testament tongue twisters in the names here but I'm very grateful that I have this job and that Wellesley has the job to preach on it (laughs) this is what happened during the time of Xerxes the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when the King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Bitztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abekthar, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So moving to chapter 2. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the city of Citadel, uh, uh, there was in the citadel of Susa a a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai son of Jair the son of Shimei, the son of Kish who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon among those taken captive was Jehoiakim king of Judah Mordecai had a cousin named Hasadah 
whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman was also known as Esther, a woman uh, who had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favour. Immediately he provided, her, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and her family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked to and fro near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, was in charge of the harem had suggested. And Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any other of the women, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Thanks very much, John. Long reading, but I think uh, needed to get as much of the fullness of the story as we can. Let's pray, shall we, as we look at it together. Father in heaven, as we approach this new series in the book of Esther, please, over these next few weeks, speak to us, speak to our hearts. And Lord, please encourage us if for whatever reason we feel distant from you. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you've been a Christian any length of time, then no doubt you've asked this question through the changing seasons of life. Where's God? Where's God in all of this, maybe during a bereavement or a family crisis, maybe it's a struggle at work or an incident of bullying at school, maybe it's an illness or an emotional breakdown of someone close and it feels like God is distant, feels like he's removed himself from the picture altogether and it leaves us asking the question, where's God? Where's God in all of this mess? 
Well, that's a question you have asked or are asking this morning. You'll be pleased to know that the Bible addresses that question and it does so beautifully in the book of Esther. You see, as we pick up the story in verse 1, the date is now 483 BC and we find the people of God in exile away from the promised land living under the brutal dictatorship of Xerxes king of Persia. Some of God's people have already returned to Jerusalem. We read about that a few weeks ago in the book of Ezra. But for whatever reason, others have remained in Persia, stuck in exile, and so it seems cut off from God and his promises. And over the next four weeks, we're going to become very familiar with two of those characters, a man named Mordecai and his cousin Hadassah, whose Persian name is Esther. Now, for those of you who know the book of Esther, you're probably aware that it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of worship. There's no mention of God's covenant with his people, which has led some to describe it as a secular story. But as we'll see, this is anything but a secular story. This is a gospel story lived out in a secular world. You see, Persia was a godless place. A vast empire stretching all the way from India to Egypt, a secular society driven by money, sex and power, where the one true God has been squeezed to the margins of life. You see, the simple point that the author is making is this. For Esther and for Mordecai and for the other faithful men and women of God who remained in Persia, living in that land at that time, it must have felt like God was absent. And it must have left God's people asking the question, where is my God in all this mess? Yet despite his absence or despite feeling absent, God, as we shall see, is very present. Quietly at work behind the scenes, preserving his people for his glory. And that is the key lesson that we've got to learn from the book of Esther. Even when it feels like God is distant, even when it feels like God has left the room altogether, he hasn't. He is carefully and quietly working behind the scenes, working out his good purposes for his people. And this morning, as we focus on the first two chapters, we meet the story of two queens. The fall of Queen Vashti and the rise of Queen Esther. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 1 through to 4 again. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet For all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. So before we meet the queen, we're introduced to the king and we're meant to be impressed King Xerxes is a man of great wealth and power, and he's happy to make it known. For those of you who go back that far, you'll be aware that 1981 was a big year for the royal family. 
Prince Charles married Lady Diana Spencer in a wedding that cost a staggering 70 billion, 70 million, not quite 70 billion, 70 million, it's big enough, 70 million dollars and was watched by over 750 million people across the globe. And the centerpiece of that wedding was Diana's dress with a 25-foot train embroidered with 10,000 pearls. It was a wedding dress, and it was a wedding designed to make a statement. Back in 483 BC, King Xerxes wanted to make a similar statement, and he threw a party of unrivaled extravagance lasting 180 days, and he invited every big name he could in order to display the vast wealth of his kingdom. And as you can see, he had plenty to show off, verse 4. For a full 180 days, he, he displayed, he showed off the vast wealth of his kingdom. And so what does this showy, arrogant king do when this over-the-top party comes to an end? Well, he throws another one. Verse 5, when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Now, this is a more private affair, and so it seems even more lavish than the one that preceded it. Expensive cloth draped from, from pillars of marble. Couches of gold and silver and a constant supply of wine served in bespoke goblets of gold. Here we're presented with an illusion of freedom and fulfillment. Have a look at verse 8. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction. For the king instructed all the wine stews to serve each man what he wished. People can do whatever they want. They can drink whatever they want. There's no boundaries. There's no limits. There's no restrictions. This is a total free-for-all. Yet even this so-called freedom is all at the command of King Xerxes. It's not a big jump, is it, to our world today? If you were to write a slogan for 21st century Britain, I'm sure it would read something like this, be what you want. Do what you want, consume what you want, fair isn't it, be whatever you want to be, says the world, do whatever you want to do, consume whatever you want to consume, that is what we're being fed all the time in this humanistic and materialistic age, but of course that's not genuine freedom. That's not authentic fulfilment, that is a description of a society that in the end will destroy itself. But that's exactly what we find back in Susa. You can imagine the conversation, can't you? The party, all these high testosterone men loaded with wine. The wine is flowing and they're bragging about what they have and what they've done. And not wanting to be put out of his place. Xerxes throws it all out there. He flaunts everything he's got. But of course, he's got one more trump card left to play. One more trophy still to display. And we're introduced to her in verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, i.e. drunk, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, 
to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown, and as some commentators think, probably not much else, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Xerxes has showed off his wealth, and now he wants to show off his wife. And so he calls for the queen, and his intentions are clear in verse 11. He wants to brag about her beauty and about her body. As one commentator said, she may have the title queen, but she is nothing more than a sex object for the king to display, ready to be brought out and paraded before these drunken guests to be drooled over like a stripper at a stag party. This is a crude and immoral gathering that epitomizes the reign of King Xerxes and sadly reflects much of our society today. But then in verse 12, we get our first shaft of light because this all-powerful, all-wealthy king who always gets what he wants doesn't get what he wants. You see that in verse 12? But the attendants, when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. She turned him down. You see, this king may have great power and great influence, but he does not control the will of another human being. And that's really important for us to get today, because however powerful, however persuasive, however godless our society may become, it does not control our wills. We are responsible human beings. That is the way God made us to be. And the way that we respond, the way that we behave in this sometimes godless world really matters. You can imagine the reaction, can't you? As the message is relayed back to King Xerxes and and gossip starts to spread around the guests, she's not coming. She's turned him down. You see, for a proud and arrogant king like Xerxes, this must have been the pinnacle of public humiliation. And we see that in his reaction at the end of verse 12. Then the king became furious and burned with anger, embarrassed publicly in front of everyone. So what does he do in response? How does he seek to remedy this situation? Well, on the recommendation of his close counsel, he seeks to reassert his authority. To let people know who's really in charge. And he does it by sending out this this empire-wide announcement, the climax of which is the removal of Queen Vashti. Verse 19, have a look down. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti, notice she'd already lost a title of queen already, is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Queen Vashti has been disposed, or deposed even. It's hard to know how you're meant to feel, isn't it? But what we do know is this, the fall of Queen Vashti opened up the door to the rise of Queen Esther. And that's what we read about in chapter 2. Have a look down at verse 1 and 2 of that chapter later. When King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgins for the king. 
Now, just to help you with the time frames, this is now four years later. We know that from verse 16, where we learn that this is now the, the, the seventh year of the reign of Xerxes. And quite a lot's happened in the interim. Most notably, Xerxes has failed in his attempt to conquer Greece and expand his empire. And now he's back in the citadel of Susa, licking his wounds, working out what to do next. And it's at that point that this proposal is made in verse 2. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. No doubt you've heard about football scouts, where the the top football clubs send out all their scouts to identify, to find, to scout out the best talents. Well, here in verse 2, scouts are sent out from the Persian capital of Susa. But they're not looking for sporting prowess. They're looking for superficial beauty. And those selected by the commissioners are then added to the the harem in verse 3, which is essentially a group of women who were set aside for the pleasure of the king. Those selected are given 12 months of the best beauty treatments available before appearing in the presence of the king. And the one who pleases Xerxes most will be crowned queen. Now on the surface that might sound like the ultimate spa treatment, but of course it's way more seedy than that. As we learn in verse 14, these women are being prepared for one night in the king's bed. The king would choose the one he wanted, the one who performed best, the one who pleased him most, while the others were discarded to live out the rest of their lives as as token sex slaves, ready to be called in at any moment at the whim of this king. And it's at this dark and godless moment that we are introduced to Esther and Mordecai in verse 5. Have a look down. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. From Esther's description in verse 7, it's not surprising she's selected, is it, in verse 8, and she is added to this harem. There's also a lovely contrast in these few verses because even though her beauty was clear for all to see, there was one thing that remained hidden, verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. We're not told what the motive for concealing their Jewish uh, heritage was, but this we do know. God was carefully moving Esther into position. You see, for all the pomp and the power of Xerxes, he's not the one in charge. God is. 
You see, no doubt during those 12 months where Esther was part of that harem, there were many moments where she lifted her eyes to the heavens and called out to God, God, where are you? Asking that very same question we asked at the beginning, God, where are you in the middle of this mess? How can you allow such dark and desperate things to happen? Well, little did she know that God was moving her into position for such a time as this. To be made the Queen of Persia. That she might influence the King of Persia. And in so doing, preserve the whole Jewish nation from annihilation. And that's where the story is heading. That's where it all unravels in chapter 8. And so it is for us today. There'll be times when it feels like God has left the building, when life's just rubbish and stuff happens and you're trying to get your head around it. Why is it happening? Why me? Why so dark? Why so desperate? And we call out to the God of heaven and say, where are you, God, in all of this mess? Well, the answer is he's working for the good of his people. We need to learn these lessons from Esther. However bleak and godless at times life may feel, God is not absent. God is with his people and he is quietly at work behind the scenes preserving, as we shall see, his people for his glory. Well, in verse 16, the great and dreadful day arrives. Esther was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. It's like the camera slows down at this pivotal, pivotal moment. As Esther leaves the harem after twelve months worth of beauty treatment, she walks down the royal corridors towards the bedroom of the king. The time has come. And of course, God could have saved his people in another way. But in this moment, it feels like the whole future of God's people rests on the outcome of this one night. And so we read in verse 17, Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. To use the analogy of a game of chess, God has just made the winning move. It won't be played out till a few chapters time, but God has just made his decisive move. Esther is now in position. And by the grace of God, she will use that position to make her stand for the people of God. Or as Mordecai says in chapter 4, verse 14, who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. You see, we call these two chapters the story of two queens. But maybe a better title would have actually been the story of two kings. The Persian king, who is loud and lavish, but ultimately powerless. And the true king, who is quietly at work behind the scenes, yet with infinite power and control at his fingertips. And that's the story of the whole Bible, isn't it? A story that finds its climax in Jesus Christ. You see, when the true king arrived in this world 2,000 years ago, he looked powerless. He looked unimpressive. He arrived quietly in this world. No fanfare, no lavish party. 
As we read in Isaiah 53, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Jesus came in weakness and he died in weakness, laying down his life on the cross for sinners like us. Yet this is the same king who with three words quiets in the raging storm. Same king who healed the sick. The same king who raised the dead. The same king who conquered death forever with his own resurrection from the dead. The same king who ascended into glory and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And it is this king that one day before every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Christ shall come on that day with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Unlike Xerxes, King Jesus isn't bothered about external beauty or temporary treasures. He's bothered about inner beauty. He's bothered about your hearts. He's bothered about your character. He's bothered about lasting treasure that will one day be ours forever in heaven at a party that will look oh so different to the one that Xerxes threw because we'll be in the presence of King Jesus on that day.